taken a bit of a break from our uh, parables series, because this is the Sunday before Christmas. thought it would be nice to have a Christmas-themed message, uh, so please pray with me. Heavenly Father, I thank you uh, for today. Again, I thank you for all those uh, who, who gave uh, their time and their effort and their strength uh, to clearing all our walkways and, and doorways and, and salting everything so that we could have the church open today. Uh, in spite of the snowstorm we had, uh, that we could gather together today uh, to bring you our worship, to bring you our thanks, to come together on the Sunday before Christmas and reflect on and be joyful about the birth of your son, the birth of hope, a time where, when we could uh, say, yes, my sin separates me from God, but I have hope. I have a promise I have hope I can cling to. So Lord, I pray that you bless our time this morning as we take a look at your word. That you may bury your seeds of truth deep within us and bear real fruit in our lives. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This past year of 2020 has been one for the history books, hasn't it been? I know you guys get that. <laughs> I don't think any of us, other than those who lived through the rations and the blackout curtains of World War II, have experienced anything like we've experienced over the course of this year. Between the pandemic and the economic crisis and the restrictions and the church shutdowns and skyrocketing employment and the natural disasters in California and the states that border the Atlantic Ocean and the Gulf of Mexico and the turmoil surrounding another government election, there's been a lot to throw us off, hasn't there been? In fact, there was a curious development that happened back in the late spring. I know you guys all remember this. We're now on the Sunday before Christmas, and everything is decorated in lights, right? But this wasn't the first time this happened this year, was it? All the, all the Christmas decorations up. Back in the late spring, I'm getting blank looks. I'm not the only one who noticed this, right? There were, there were lots of Christmas decorations up this past spring as well. In an attempt to inject some hope in the midst of this tumultuous time, you started seeing what popping up all over the place of people decorating their houses for Christmas. I remember thinking, what is going on? I know the world has turned completely upside down, but now I'm seeing Christmas decorations up in late May. What is going on here? And I remember turning on the radio. I was going around during, doing errands and turning on the radio in our van and hearing Andy Williams, it's the most wonderful time of the year on the radio. The, the radio station was playing Christmas music. It was late May. And I was thinking to myself, well, I don't know if it's necessarily the most wonderful time of the year right now, but oh, sure, we'll go with it. Well, why did people start doing that? Why were people putting up Christmas decorations and radio stations were playing Christmas music back in late May? Why were people doing that? Why Christmas? Why, you didn't see Halloween decorations or Thanksgiving decorations or, I don't know, Earth Day decorations going up on people's houses. Why Christmas? It's because of what Christmas represents, right? Christmas represents hope. Even if it was purely secular, for secular reasons, 
Christmas still generally represents hope for a lot of people. And why is that? It's not because of family gatherings, which have been outlawed in several states right now. It's not because of visits to Santa at the mall, because many malls cancel that, or you got to stay six feet away from Santa, socially distanced visit to Santa. It's because what Christmas celebrates at its core is the birth of hope. And during this dark and difficult and hopeless time, the birth of hope is especially powerful. And in reality, is, all, is what all of us really need right now. The authors of Luke and Matthew start their Gospels out with the birth of Jesus. Dr. Luke, as a physician, treats the event as a scientific, historical account. And in fact, he's very meticulous about the details he chooses to include in his account in order for it to be seen as historically accurate. That was his point. Now, there have been multiple studies done to discredit all the critics of the Bible who seek to point out Luke's seeming historical discrepancies, but those who claim Luke's historical details are a weakness can be shown that they are actually strengths, pointing out the historical accuracy of the Gospel's account of Jesus' life on earth. And I've gone through those in, in previous messages. Matthew is also historical and chooses to focus more on the Jewish aspect of Jesus being the Jewish Messiah. He focuses more on the kingship of Jesus over both the Jewish people and the Gentile rest of the world by way of the pagan Magi's visit and contrasting that with Herod's paranoid ruthlessness. And Mark, as it's directed more at the Roman way of life and their love of action, you know, how the Romans were obsessed with their gladiators and Colosseum. It's written more like a comic book. It's nonstop action. You open up Mark chapter 1, verse 1. It's nonstop action all the way through it from beginning to end. Because of this, Mark begins with what happens immediately before Jesus starts right into his ministry. He, 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 he doesn't start it off any other way. But the way the Apostle John treats the introduction of Jesus in his gospel is vastly different than the other three gospel accounts of, of Jesus' introduction, especially the other two gospel accounts of Jesus' birth. And that's the beauty of having four different gospel accounts of Jesus' life. You get all these different angles to it. The way John introduces Jesus to us is as the Word. That's how John introduces Jesus to us. It's an overarching, theological, and somewhat esoteric way of describing Jesus. But it gives us a powerful understanding of Jesus' birth, also being the birth of hope for us and of this world. So if you brought your Bible with you, please turn to John. And we're going to be in the very first chapter of John, John chapter 1, very first verse of John chapter 1. If you didn't bring your Bible with you, that's okay. There should be one located in the pew in front of you. Please also turn to John chapter 1, uh, or you can look it up on, on a Bible app on your phone. And we're going to start with the very beginning of John chapter 1. And we read, in the beginning. Stop right there. In the beginning. This sounds familiar, doesn't it? In the beginning, doesn't it? This isn't the first time we've seen that phrase, in the beginning. And it's on purpose. 
John doesn't accidentally do this. He does this outright on purpose, that he starts his gospel off the very same way as the entire Bible starts off. Where else do we see this? In the beginning. Again, at the very beginning of the Bible, we read, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In fact, let's skip over verse 2 for now and read verse 3. All things came into being through him, and apart from him nothing came into being that has come into being. Both at the very beginning of verse 1 and following up in verse 3, John is connecting Jesus to the creation of the world. In fact, John writes that it was through Jesus that the entire universe was created. He is the origin of everything in existence. And that's why he directly connects it back to Genesis 1.1. You might have not really thought of Jesus that way. You might have just pictured him showing up as an infant in a manger. And then he grew up and he grew a big hipster beard and long hair. Like if you put him in a pair of skinny jeans and giant 90s glasses and a slack beanie and a plaid shirt, he'd fit right into the Starbucks today. But as John directed us to right here, the only reason any of us are in existence, or the rings of Saturn are in existence, or ribosomes, or antibodies, or the force of gravity, or as we were all reminded of this past week, intricately designed snowflakes, is because Jesus designed and created all of it. He didn't just show up after the page in the Bible that has the New Testament written on it. And boom, this is the first time we've seen Jesus. He always existed. And John tells us why next. Verse 1 again. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. Verse 2. He was in the beginning with God. The Word is an English translation of the Greek word logos. I'm not going to go into all the linguistic idiosyncrasies and how John 1.1 is very clear about Jesus' godhood encountering the beliefs of Jehovah's Witnesses. We'll get into all of that in the somewhat near future. But for now, I want to focus on the meaning of why John chose to describe Jesus as the Word. The Word is a preeminent figure in both Jewish and Greek philosophy. For the Jewish people, the concept of wisdom is personified in the book of Proverbs. You've seen that. You read through the book of Proverbs, you see wisdom being personified as a person. And for the Greeks, the ancient philosophers espoused this idea of an overarching power that held the universe together. John utilized both of these already established views on this concept of the word and said, yes, both of those ideas exist. The personification of wisdom and the overarching power that holds the universe together. And it's all wrapped up in one person. It's Jesus. Jesus is the embodiment of the wisdom of God, as Paul explains in 1 Corinthians. And as John writes in verse 3, Jesus created and holds the universe together, together with the Father and the Holy Spirit. In fact, along with Genesis 1, which John is clearly connecting to here, we have a pretty strong description of the Trinity here in John chapter 1, verse 1. The Word 
or Jesus was both with God, meaning distinct from the Father, and also was God. You don't see me going up to you and saying, you say, how was your weekend? I say, I and myself had a good weekend. That, that's not going to happen. I would say, I had a good weekend. Then I would distinct somebody else from, from me. You have Jesus as God, and then you have him distinct from the Father, with the Father. The word or Jesus was both with God, meaning distinct from the Father, and was also God. He would have to be both God in nature and essence, and distinct from the Father in order to be with him. But as one biblical scholar pointed out, John is using the already established concepts of the word in Jewish and Greek understanding of it. And what he's doing is he's adding his own extension of it to Jesus under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. That's why John directly connects it to Genesis 1.1 by adding the exact same phrase in the beginning. See, the thoughts of God as it pertained to creation, he had these thoughts, God had these thoughts as it pertained to creation, but then they were completed in their function of actual creation by what? What he said, right? The word of God. He spoke everything into existence and thus fulfilled his thoughts of creation. In the exact same way, Jesus is the expression of God's thoughts or ultimate wisdom. Jesus made the same claim about himself when he said, I don't speak on my own authority. The Father who sent me has commanded me what to say and how to say it. Jesus is the expression of the wisdom of the Father. And he also said this, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. I am the expression of Almighty God. Jesus is the expression or the word of God the Father. And since the Bible is also the expression of God, Jesus is the embodiment of the entire word of God. So to love and obey Jesus, as he himself says, is to love and obey the word of God. It's not enough to just say you love or even just believe in Jesus. You have to listen to and follow his words. Why? Because he's the king. That's why. And while that may not sound all that hopeful on the surface, Jesus' birth as the king of the world is the only hope for this world. There's a twofold reason for this. Jesus will not only rule the entire earth someday, but he has also redeemed the entire world. See, it's one thing for a king to rule over a kingdom and even be a good king. That's one thing. It's quite another for that king to die for that kingdom in order to redeem it from evil, sin, and darkness. And yet that is the true hope of Christmas. It's not just about a baby. It's not just about that baby being honored as a king or even worshipped as God. It's about that baby growing up. In order for Jesus to be 100% God and 100% man, in order to redeem humanity, 
His humanity needed to originate in the exact same way as any one of us are in the womb of a woman. But the fact that he was born as a baby isn't the point, nor the hope of Christmas. It's that that baby grew up. It's that that person took all the sins of humanity upon himself, took our place on the cross, paid the death penalty for our sin, and then rose again to give us eternal life. That is the point and hope of Christmas. That's what John gets at in verse 4. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. That is our hope. Jesus is both the life and the light of humanity. His death is our life. And that life is the light of our hope in this hopeless and dark world. And John bringing this full circle all the way back to the moment of creation is what gives us the hope of Christmas in a nutshell. Because what is the very first thing that God spoke into existence? Let there be light. Jesus, John says right here, is that light, the light of men. And John connecting that to the moment of creation, giving us the hope of Christmas in a nutshell, is this. Jesus, the second person of the Trinitarian Godhead, God himself, and in accordance with the plan of God the Father and the power of the Holy Spirit, created the entire universe. The whole Trinity, three in one, said, let's create a being that reflects who we are, albeit in a much more limited capacity. So they created a human being, one capable of understanding and reflecting the attributes of God, his justice, his moral goodness, his wisdom, his compassion, and his love. God was to have an eternal and perfectly connected relationship with this being, both man and woman. But the first man and woman thought they didn't need God and rather wanted to be like God themselves. Instead of enjoying a perfect relationship with God and enjoying the best he had for them, they broke his heart. Because humanity thought they could live their lives based on what they thought was best for them, the fitting consequence is God's children was to lose that life. And because humanity, if left up to ourselves, will continually reject God and his standards, the fitting consequence was then being cut off from him and his goodness, both physically and then spiritually. God's perfect justice would not be mocked. Through that first sin, the entire world was subjected to a curse. Paul writes in Romans that not only does humanity groan during this painful and dark period in human history, but the entirety of God's creation, created through Jesus, groans in pain. Especially over this past year, we've seen that both humanity and all of creation, created through Jesus, continues to both suffer under this curve. Both of them suffer under this curse. And humanity has continued to perpetuate it. Man, every time we break God's standard as humans, we perpetuate and confirm the presence of this curse. See, we can't say, 
well, if it wasn't for Adam and Eve, we'd be a lot better off right now. Every time we break God's standard, we perpetuate that curse. We confirm that curse. But just as God's perfect justice would not be mocked, his perfect love for his children would not wane. God knew his beloved children would reject him. They would still have to face the consequences of that rejection, but he had already come up with a plan to save them from those consequences. Again, the penalty for the rejection of God was death, both physical death, but also the second death for the soul, banishment to a place called hell. Humanity itself could not pay for that itself because that's what it simply owed. Knowing that, in the perfect timing in human history, and knowing that God would pay that himself for humanity, he laid out a system of worship where innocent animals would be sacrificed to take the place of humans and their sin. The whole system was not the end-all of end-all. It was meant to point out the horribleness and the trauma and the gravity of humanity's sin while pointing to something else, while pointing to a perfect sacrifice someday. We'll talk more about this on Christmas Eve this week. But at the perfect time, at the perfect time in the history of humanity and in the history of all of creation, God revealed this perfect sacrifice. Almost 2,000 years ago, God sent one of his angelic messengers to tell a 14-year-old girl named Mary that she would become the mother and bearer of the Messiah. She willingly obeyed in spite of all the social stigmas and risk to the rest of her life that would bring. An unwed mother in the first century Jewish Palestine would normally face poverty and destitution for the rest of her life. But again, God intervened and confirmed for her, confirmed for her betrothed to marry her anyway. And then when the Messiah's life was at risk again, this this time, by humanly royal murderous decree, God spared him again. King Herod was the last notable king over Judea, even though he was a Roman puppet. His son Archelaus only ruled for nine years after his death. His rule was so incompetent that he was removed from power by Caesar Augustus in 6 AD. That's why Matthew tells us that Joseph was afraid to return to Bethlehem after their refugee life in Egypt. But what did Herod his father accomplish, Herod the Great? A good deal. He built the great temple that Jesus would be dedicated in as an infant, and that Jesus would teach in, and that Jesus would clear out during his ministry, and whose veil between the Holy of Holies and the rest of the world would be torn in two at Jesus' death. But Herod the Great was also a very cruel king, and he was paranoid, and he was murderous. Traits we catch a glimpse of when he issued the decree that all the male babies in the Jerusalem area were to be killed to prevent his kingship from being usurped. That's just a glimpse at the cruelness of Herod. It was during that king's rule that the true king of the universe, the Lagos, the word of God, is born as a human. Whereas that king was only king by way of Roman decree, the true king was sovereign. 
He didn't need anybody to put him in power. He was always in power. Whereas that king was petty and paranoid, the true king would rule with perfect justice and perfect wisdom. Whereas that king built a temple that was supposed to be to the one true God, the true king embodied and was the temple that would be the center of worship of the one true God. Whereas that king's temple would eventually be destroyed by the Romans. When the Romans destroyed the temple of, of, of the true king, that temple would be raised back to life. This true king grew up, revealed what the kingdom of God was all about through parables, the same parables we've been spending this whole pandemic period talking about, and then would fulfill the role of perfect sacrifice in death for his creation's rejection of him. But the story doesn't end there, as John says in verse 4. Three days later, the king rose again from the dead and became the fulfillment of everything that life and light is. What that did was finally make a way for humanity to be restored to God and become reconnected in relationship to him with what was ultimately lost back in Eden. That way is this. If we come to a place of understanding the gravity of our sin, and that our sin only gives us the deserved penalty of both physical death and the second death, and recognize that Jesus, as God, was the perfect sacrifice who paid that penalty on our behalf and took our place, we have an opportunity to ask God for forgiveness of that sin. When we do that, and we repent of that, and we turn away from that, Living, a, living, turning away from living a life chasing after sin, we immediately become reconciled to God and become adopted as one of his children. That adoption gives us the greatest gift, God himself. John summarizes that in verse 4, life and light. Accepting Jesus personally as both our Savior from our sin and the King over our lives gives us life and light in every way. When we make that decision, we're immediately indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and he starts going to work on changing the way we view the world and the way we think about everything. Jesus replaces our fear, especially during a time such as this, with his peace. Jesus replaces our addictions and chains and, repla and replaces them with his freedom. Jesus takes our way of looking at everything and looking at everything the way the rest of the world does and replaces it with viewing everything through the lenses of God and that he has a perfect plan that will never be thwarted. And Jesus takes our uncertainty and our fear of death and replaces it with the confidence of knowing that he's preparing our heavenly home for us right now. And when it's time for, us, for him to call us home, that's his call. Death is merely a door to the next life. One of perfection. Perfect bodies and minds. As well as perfect relationship with God. And a perfect world. That's all death is. Death is an open door to a perfect world. That's what brings us to the second of the twofold hope of Christmas. 
The first is that this redemption that Jesus brought to us by way of him being the perfect sacrifice. The second is that he's coming back as the perfect king. There will be a day when Jesus will come back to earth and will set up his kingdom on earth. A thousand year period of prosperity, peace, and abundance unlike anything this world has ever seen. And it's at that point that the earth, just as we will, will finally catch a glimpse at an uncursed world. Every knee will bow at King Jesus' return. And this world will finally see a perfect and perfectly just government. The curse of crippling storms and natural disasters will be calmed by the sound of his voice. Just as the storm on the Sea of Galilee was calmed by his voice. And the once cursed ground will yield an unsurpassed amount of produce and fruit. Following the millennial kingdom, God will completely destroy this world as we know it with fire, and he will create a brand new world. One that we who are his children through faith and repentance will be able to enjoy forever and ever and ever. Amen? Amen. And all of that is wrapped up in the phrase, life and light. That's the hope of Christmas. That's what Christmas is all about. So as we gather as a church family on Christmas Eve, and then we gather with our families at different points this week to celebrate Christmas, let us keep all of that in the forefront of our minds. Let us share the true origin of life and light, the real hope of Christmas with others this week. And let all of that change our everyday lives, not just at Christmas, let the hope of what we celebrate at Christmas change the way we view our lives, change the way we look at this world, the way we see our past, and the way we look to the future. All of it is redeemed. All of it is infused with hope. And all because God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, so that everyone who believes in him will not die, but will have eternal life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the hope of what this passage gives us, the promise of what this passage gives us. We thank you that you are the word. We thank you that you are life and light, the only light of humanity. And so, Lord, as we celebrate Christmas together as a church family on Thursday, and as we gather with family throughout the week, I pray that you would keep what the hope and meaning of Christmas is at the forefront of our minds. We wouldn't get distracted by all these other things, but we would look at the world and everything in it the way that you want us to look at it. We thank you for what the death and resurrection of Jesus means in redeeming everything about our lives and we thank you for the gift of being able to look forward to the future, being able to look forward to that open door of death even, being able to look forward to your return for us. And this whole time, in the meantime, knowing that you have a lot of work for us to do and a lot of praying for us to do. And I pray that we would fulfill all of that with the strength and power of the Holy Spirit. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.